0: Verses for today, which are taken from Paul's letter to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, and you'll find this on page 1182 in the church items. <coughs> Starting from verse 15, titled The Supremacy of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard. And that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Thank the Lord for his word.
1: We are going to look at uh, the book of Ephesians. This is part of our travel on Route 66. We're following this book, and uh, copies are available. Um, and uh, it's an excellent uh, book to give you an overview of the whole of the Bible. We've come now to the whole area of Paul's letters, Peter's letters, uh, and John, these apostles who wrote to these fledgling churches, just barely surviving, and trying to help them to grow in their faith. And in many ways, we're part of that ongoing church. The heading today is Jesus, the Cosmic King, as Paul speaks about the Lord Jesus. Route 66. It used to be referred to as the main street of America. I was talking to somebody on Friday evening who is big into Harley Davidson and uh, these Um, Men with grey ponytails go on on this pilgrimage as they retire, and they do the Route 66. So it's the main street of America. Uh, It uh, stretches from Grand Park in Chicago to Santa Monica Boulevard, the Ocean Avenue in Southern California. More than 2,400 miles of concrete that covered three time zones ...and eight states. So Route 66 starts at Lake Michigan. You could travel west from Illinois... ...to Missouri, through Kansas, Oklahoma... ...that vast state of Texas, New Mexico... ...past Arizona, and finally you arrive at the roaring Pacific. There it is. 2,400 miles of concrete... Route 66. What we are doing today to make the connection is that the Bible, we're calling it Route 66, there are 66 books that make up the Bible. Some of us perhaps don't have an appreciation of its terrain. So as we travel and we're now on our penultimate journey, we're coming to these epistles as they're called, letters to the churches. These 66 books that stretch from Genesis to Revelation, just think for a moment, the Bible as we have it today, will span 1,500 years, 40 generations, more than 40 writers, and in three different languages. And so it's 400 years that the King James Version has so massively influenced Western society and Britain uh, in particular And yet, if the truth be told, for some people who have been to church all their lives, the Bible remains a mental maze, a complex puzzle that defies understanding. And many people just give up, perhaps choose a text here and there, but in terms of seeing how it comes together, it's a bit of a puzzle. It reminds me, and I think I've related this true story of a lady who was reading her Bible when she was on a a flight. Uh, It was her custom to to read the Bible notes. Uh, every day, and she would be busy, so here she was on a flight, taking her mind off, traveling, and she's there sitting. And there's a gentleman next to her, and says, oh, I see you're reading the Bible. She's, she says, yes, I, I make a point of reading it every day. And he says to her, but surely you, you don't believe it, do you? She said, yes, I do. It's the Bible. But you don't believe all of it. Well, she said, I don't understand all of it. So he went on to say, but what about that part where that man was swallowed by a whale? Well she said you mean Jonah yes Jonah that's him well she said i don't know when i get to heaven i'll ask him and he went persisted and said well what if he isn't in heaven and she said well then you can ask him now, <laughs> you know sometimes it is a sterile debate and i find it as i get on quite tiresome in the extreme trying to convince people and often they haven't a genuine true intellectual reason why they don't see in the book, the Lord of the book, Jesus Christ. And the whole point of Route 66 is this, that it points us to him. There are landmarks throughout, they point to Jesus, the coming of the Messiah. And that is consistent throughout the whole of the book, through all that uh, time scale. And we're now on our penultimate stop, we're coming to these letters we're coming to Ephesians, and all that we're doing is to see Paul's introduction. So we'll narrow it right down to that for the purpose of the time that we have. And we're looking in Ephesians uh, chapter 1 and verses 3 to 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 14 is page 1173, if you're using the church Bible, 1173. Ephesians chapter 1. It's a circular letter. It's a letter to the churches of Asia, and uh, that's modern-day Turkey, And there are very few churches in Turkey today. And yet, throughout the whole world, the spread of the Christian gospel and the Christian church is staggering and amazing and humbling. Quite remarkable. And here's one of Paul's prison letters. If you think what hope is there, of the church surviving. Here's the main leader. He's in prison. He's going to be executed under the authorities' Rome. He's awaiting Caesar. Caesar does know about him. He may have to sit there for two years, twelve years. Who knows? He's not very important. But while he's there in the providence of God, he writes these letters. And he writes to these fledgling churches and many of them are struggling. And yet today, think of the growth of the church. So, Route 66. Here we are. In one of his letters. And although he's got a lot to complain about. This opening prayer verses 3 to 14 is full of praise and worship and fervent prayer. Now that in itself would be a good lesson to many of us. Where complaining has become a sort of a a habit. It's part of us. We may have reasons to complain from time to time. But when we become permanent complainers. Something's wrong. Something's deeply wrong. And just to read this opening prayer, would say, I can't go on like this. If for no other reason you did that, that would be worth listening to this sermon. Well, here we are. Let's break it down and see it under these three headings very quickly. It's what's called Trinitarian. So you have uh, that Paul says people who have come to faith are blessed by God the Father. They are saved by God the Son and sealed by God the Holy Spirit. There it is. Those three things. Here is a great opening prayer, you see uh, there as you have it in front of you. And here's the danger as I speak to you, and it is the perennial danger of preachers, I suppose, and it's this, that it's not so much for our analysis. If we were to break it down and so on, that would be very interesting. But essentially, if you get into this prayer, it's for our adoration. Yes, of course, we are rational beings, but we are also emotional beings. We have a heart as well as a mind. So this is our adoration. And the most striking thing about this prayer, just look at these two things very quickly. The first is its spiritual dimension. You see in verse 3, 6, 12, 14, if if this morning you had the original language and you had a Greek New Testament in front of you, you would see that verses 13 to 14 is all in one sentence. That's not very good grammar, I know. Verses 13 to 14 in the original languages, one long sentence. It's as if Paul can't can't take a breath without thinking about good and gracious and wonderful is this God who loved us so much and gave us his son. It's a profound spiritual dimension, changing our perspective and our thinking about God and ourselves. One long sentence. And the second thing you notice too here is it's, 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 it's theological richness. It's talking about God. It's not me-centered. It's God-centered. And it's engaging with our minds and our hearts. And let's focus on two sentences. First of all, look at verse 4. And this has been perhaps a source of trouble to some people rather than an encouragement. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. That's a very staggering sentence, isn't it? Before the world was made. If you can, take that on board. God in his love, through Jesus, chose you. Now, if that doesn't humble you, I don't know what will. That's what he's saying. God has chosen us in him, in Jesus Before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us. Now I know these are strong theological terms. But he's writing to ordinary Christians. Possibly many of whom would have been slaves. You don't need to be clever to be a Christian. He's chosen us. And the doctrine of election has a bad press with some people. That they think that God just zaps some people and not others. And it's not fair. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. What Paul is saying here is this. In this great mystery of this doctrine of election and grace, it's not because of ourselves. The truth is, it's despite ourselves. And well, we know that. It is because of Christ. He's chosen us in Christ. In love, it says there. Um, that you have it in verse, at the end of verse 4. He chose us in love. He so loved the world. That he gave his son. So do you see where we're going. He has chosen us. This great mystery of election. How does he do that? What's the, what's the mechanism of it? Well, you, I'm speaking. You're listening. And if you're not sure if you are a believer. Then be sure. Reach out to him. And as you do, he's chosen you. Because he's given us the gift of a response. So it's, it's not mechanistic. It's a heart response. He's chosen us in love. And he does that, look at verse 11. You see it there, look. Let me read it to you. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. He's on track. And nothing diverts God from that. And you see, our response, well what should it be? If that is so, and it is, what should our response be? I hope it's one of awe and wonder and worship and praise. This isn't for an analysis only, but for adoration supremely. And then, verse 5, it says he's adopted us. There are some folk here who've adopted um, children into their family. And it's quite a lengthy process. So what's he saying here in verse 5? Look, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons, that's a generic term, as children, through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of his will. It is because of his love that this adoption is taking place. Adopted. Now in the New Testament, this idea of adoption refers to the official act of bestowing A family name. You take on the family name. And of course the whole point of being adopted by grace is surely this. And you take on the family likeness. And the whole point of coming to faith is that we are more like Christ. We take on, you know families have quirky things and characteristics. And and you see that. Well look, God's family are children of grace. And there's that wonderful process of transformation that's always taking place. We don't take the L plates off. We're still learning. We're still learning. And our response? Well, it's an immense privilege. We have status. We have a family name. I remember doing a series in Lord Williams' school on the rites of passage and uh, taking... Um, a former member of, well still a current member of this church but not well now confined to home, Dougie Blog, many of you will know him and uh, he was a Bernardo's boy from the east end of London he joined the army at 16 because he didn't have a birth certificate fought in Korea at the age of 50 he carried a bible with him all the time, never opened it in the army, staff sergeant, never opened it, it was a good luck charm just carried it, bring him good luck he'd seen colleagues dying and so on and And at 50, he thought, what is this book, Route 66? Where do you start? Well, he came to a living faith. And he was a character around the town. He he drove the the dust cart, and uh, a lot of people knew him. So I interviewed him with the sixth form in the school and said to him, uh, he shared a brief account of how he came to faith. And then they asked questions. One of the first questions the young people asked was this. uh, "What, What was your father like? He said, I don't know, I never met him. Never met my real father. But actually, he said, I've got three fathers. The father I never met, the adopted father that I knew, and a heavenly father that I'm going to see one day. That was a very good answer, wasn't it? Adopted. Because of God's great love, we are adopted into his family. Of course we don't deserve it, but it's all by grace. The second sentence here is this then. There it is. We're blessed by God the Father. We are saved by God the Son. So Paul r- writes to them. And he says this in verse 7. Look at it. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. You have that from verses 7 to 12. And if the first is God-centered. It's all about God. This is Christ-centered. It's all about him. If you take time. And it would you, you would benefit from it. If you were to read these verses 7 to 12. Paul uses the term in Christ or its equivalent. There are different nuances of translation. Meaning is the same. In Christ or its equivalent. Eleven times. Now, he's saying something, isn't he, here? And we need to sit up. Listen up. Eleven times to be in Christ. How safe is that? So what are the blessings of belonging to him? Of being in Christ? Well, look at verses 7 to 8. The, The blessing of redemption. I'm redeemed. Now, redemption didn't mean a great deal to to the Greek mindset. It meant a lot to the Jewish one. The people were brought out of Egypt, brought through uh, the, um, the Jordan into the promised land. How? By a Passover lamb. And Jesus is the Passover lamb. And so he switches, doesn't he? That was historic. This is now. That happened there. This is happening now. He's redeeming us not from the slavery of Egypt but from the slavery of sin. He's the Lamb of God who died on the cross. Now you see how he wants to make a connection. We are... The the blessing of redemption. So this Old Testament concept of redeeming from Egypt the Passover lamb, that's history. Now, here and now in the New Testament, redemption through the blood of the Lamb and the cross, now, that's present tense. Atonement, Forgiveness. We need forgiveness. If you compare yourself to other people, you could get by. That's <laughs> not the point, is it? It's to come before this loving, holy God. And we are found wanting. Blessed. Saved by God the Son. The blessing of redemption. And secondly... And I hope this, I will just stay with this and then come to the last point uh, more quickly. Verses 9 to 12. You see this, the blessing of understanding. Now, I'm almost tempted to say to you this morning, look, I'm not so much, well, I am interested if you believe, but do you understand? Do you understand? This This is so crucial. Look at these verses 9 to 11 as we try to think about the salvation that we have. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to his plan. That's hard to understand. I appreciate that. Verse 12, in order that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. How much do we understand? Understanding. Do you remember last Sunday we were looking at the Gospels? Just turn again to Luke 24. There was was a a certain point among these disciples who did believe but didn't understand. And Jesus seems to bridge that gap. And I hope that by the Spirit this morning that gap can be bridged. I believe but I don't understand. Do you remember Luke 24, page 1062? Um, They're on the road to Emmaus. Jesus comes alongside them. They don't see him. He, he gives a sermon about the law and the Psalms and the prophets. It's a, he's explaining. And then verse 45. Yes, you see, believing all the way, and then suddenly the light is switched on. Look at it. Then he opened their minds so that they could believe. No. He opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And there are experiences that happen to us that we can't make sense of apart from the Holy Spirit. And what does he say? He told them, this is what was written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sin will be preached in his name to all nations. They understood. Let's see one other example, and it is worth taking the time. Turn to Acts. I don't think, I'm not sure if this comes up in, in your notes in front of you. Um, Acts, yes it does. Acts 8. And, and look at this example. Uh, again, I'm trying to m- see if we can make this important connection between what we believe and what we understand. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 30. And many of you know this, but perhaps some, some don't. This um, Ethiopian, he is the chancellor of the Exchequer in Ethiopia. He's what's called a proselyte. He's a Gentile, but he's embraced Judaism. And he's been to the Harvest Festival, which was the day of Pentecost. He's heard Peter preach a powerful sermon in the power of the Spirit. And all his life he's believed. And here's an interesting thing that happens. Verse 30. Then Philip Run along the chariot and heard the man, this is him, reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, do you see what he asks? Do you believe? No. I mean, that's important, I know, but no. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. Now, he didn't pretend to say, oh, I'm all right. Yeah I've, yeah, I've got this all together. He says, how can I? Here he is, highly intelligent, articulate, senior civil servant, all of the nation, how can I? Unless someone explains it to me. So he invites Philip to come up to sit with him. They probably had some tea and maybe something else. And they talked. And verse 32, the eunuch was reading this passage of scripture from Isaiah 53. What's he reading? He was led like a sheep to the slaughter as a lamb before the shear is silent. He opened not his mouth and so on and so forth. And then the eunuch asked uh, Philip, tell me please. Who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? I want to understand. Well, you know what Philip does. The same as Jesus. Same as I'm feebly trying to do this morning. Then Philip, beginning with that very passage of scripture in Isaiah, told him the good news about Jesus. Route 66. It points to Jesus. It's about him. And I hope this morning that, yes, believing and understanding enables us to grow What Paul is saying here then is this, that to understand what God has done is as important in order to receive what he has done. Understanding what he's done helps me to receive what he's done. Understanding is the key to receiving forgiveness of growing as a Christian in our discipleship. I was... um, uh, reading the, uh, the, the old hymn book. And uh, I came across this interesting hymn of, um, of Wesley. Uh, You'll you, you know that Charles Wesley used to write um, hymns. He wrote thousands and thousands of hymns. Um, and this one's in the hymn book. And we used to sing it here. We haven't sung it for a long time now. And uh, it was to complement John's sermon about Redemption about being in Christ. The sermon isn't a record, isn't recorded, but the hymn is. And this is what he wrote. Just think about this, right? Think about adoration. Think about all of it. And this is, what, this is the hymn. My God, I am thine. What a comfort divine. What a blessing to know my Jesus is mine. In the heavenly Lamb, thrice happy I am, and my heart, it doth dance with the sound of his name. Now, okay, it's fair that I should ask you, as a believer... And in terms of understanding, when did your heart last dance with the sound of his name? Paul is writing this this letter, this long sentence, like a torrent of of praise and adoration. And he goes on to say this. True pleasures abound in the rapturous sound. Whoever has found it has paradise found. My Jesus to know and feel his blood flow. It's life everlasting. It's heaven below. What's it like today? Now, I'm not sure Charles lived like that all the time. But sometimes at least. And then the last verse. Yet, so, it's good being a Christian. But wait. Yet, onward I haste to the heavenly feast. That, the heavenly feast, is the fullness. This, here, it's just a taste. And this I shall prove till with joy I remove. One day I'm going to die. I mean, do we really, as believers, understand? And little wonder, the press... Then, said Methodists, die well. That's something, isn't it? Till with joy I remove to this heaven of heaven in Jesus' great love. That is the blessing of understanding and, of course, how much we need to be sealed by God the Holy Spirit. Verses 13 and 14. Paul brings this out here. You see it in verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You heard it like this as, as it's being preached now. And something happens. Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. As we believe in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit we may well have subsequent experience, God willing, yes, and more. But for sure, we are sealed with the Spirit when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. So to be in Christ is to be sealed. To be in Christ is to be secure. What do we mean by that? Very quickly. A seal is a mark of ownership. They used to use a word years ago, didn't they? Of certain products, they say it's the real McCoy. That is authentic, sealed. Or the crest of the queen carries a lot of kudos, even today, sealed, a seal of ownership or approval. Or, I'm sure maybe you've sold a house or bought a house, and there it is, the sign is there, and it says, sold. But even today, human nature being what it is, prevailing circumstances, subject to contract. This is not subject to contract, it's sealed, it's signed, it's ratified by the blood of the Lord Jesus. And the Holy Spirit confirms that in our hearts. And lastly, we are safe, like a safe deposit. They used to say, as safe as the Bank of England. We tend not to say that now, not so much. A safe deposit. The Holy Spirit is sort of a part payment of what he's yet going to do, like a gift payment, if you like, a guarantee as our inheritance. As we believe in Jesus And his sacrifice on the cross. We are saved. We are safe. Sealed for the day of redemption. Now there's some gospel. And can you imagine on Route 66 where Paul writes these letters by the Spirit. They survived all the multiple translations and so forth. And we are here today. And God through his word in the power of the Spirit, speaks and changes hearts and lives. And that's the Gospel. And of course, Jesus is the cosmic Sovereign Lord.